All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. I hope you're holding up okay. Uh, it's a difficult world to hold up in. Look, I'm a Jew, and I've been to Israel twice. I don't have fully realized backloaded information about politics, about history, but I do know how I feel in terms of my experience and what I'm feeling now from the information that's coming at me from all directions through the machines I surround myself with. My family, we were not really religious Jews, but we were definitely Jews, identified as Jews, Jews from New Jersey. My family's heritage, Jewish-wise, both sides, uh, we're all here in America before World War II, before actually the the creation of, of Israel, the modern Jewish state. But, but that's, the, the Israel has a place in the minds and in, in some of the hearts of, of all Jews. It was supposed to be the one place we knew we could go. If all else crumbled, if we were run out of every other place, we could always go there and be among Jews. My mother was not a religious person. And as she got older, she's become very attached to Israel. She loves Israel. She's been several times. She went for a few weeks and spent time on a a kibbutz. My family went to Israel many years ago. I guess maybe I was just out of high school. It was probably the early 80s. We went on a tour. And on that tour, I think it was a bus tour. And I think my parents were probably the youngest people outside of the kids, which was me and my brother. That's my recollection. These were all very old, almost all Jews on a bus tour of Israel. You know, the power of the connection of Jews to Israel of all kinds, these were mostly American Jews. And there is something that happens to be, I wrote a whole book about it, Jerusalem Syndrome. It's not a political book. It's a book about belief, about mysticism about, you know, self-importance to a degree on the level of biblical proportions. But there's something about American Jews on a bus in their 70s and 80s going to Israel, many for the first time. It's, it's, it's a revelation. It's, it's a homecoming. It's a mythology. It's an ideal. This was where we're supposed to end up. Some of them were visiting graves of relatives of people that came there after the Holocaust. And, you know, we visited a kibbutz. We were told about the miracles of agriculture, what the Israelis were able to do in the desert, make it a a farmland, a technology leader. But at the core of it, for me, my reaction to it was I, I was terrified almost all the time. I was fascinated with the religious history 
that's available in Israel, in Jerusalem. You know, it, it was sort of the headquarters of all the religions, history that goes back thousands of years, Muslim history, Christian history, Jewish history, layers of, of conflict, destruction, shrines, mosques, temples, churches, the Baha'i religion. But at all times, there were, there were soldiers with guns everywhere. And for me, I, I just, I, I really couldn't understand, you know, how you could live there. It was just scary. You know, maybe I'm a sensitive guy. Maybe I'm, a, uh, I'm not cut out for it. It was just scary, the idea of, of uh, serving in the armed forces. And, yeah, and there's a pride to all this. And, and I understand what Israel represents to Jews as an idea, as a country, as, a, as salvation, as safety. I understand all that. I'm an American Jew, and I, you know, felt scared there. You know, that was my experience. I saw Bedouins, Palestinians, Orthodox Jews, Israeli soldiers, socialist Jews on the kibbutzes. But there was always a feeling, and, and not an unwarranted feeling, of, of I, I was overly sensitive and terrified, no matter how much I was told that, you know, you really couldn't be in a safer place. You, you know, this is, you, you know, this is, it has been carved out. It's well defended. You know, I, I, I didn't, again, I did not know really the history. I was a younger person. And when I read about what's happened there, you know, I just know that there were just people. They were just people on kibbutzes, people in their town, people working the land as people just working jobs as people, not unlike people who live in this country or any country after a certain point, your life is what you focus on. And, and these people who were just, you know, waking up, waiting for buses, working the land, doing things were massacred. It, you know, it's, it's devastating. I, I'm a Jew. But it's not just as a Jew, as a person. Now, not unlike here in America and, you know, things I've talked about, about governments, about, you know, how people are seen as, as, as fodder, how people are diminished, objectified, uh, and, and lumped together. It never leads anywhere good. And then, you know, Almost ancient rivalries, you know, founded in a need for power, you know, wh whatever solutions you think are on the table or whatever you hope for in, in that region, uh, you know, whoever is jockeying for power at the top of any sort of paradigm on any side, you know, sees human life as garbage, as disposable. But my heart goes out to innocent people just trying to live their fucking lives. I do know I'm a Jew. I do talk about being a Jew. I do talk about anti-Semitism. I do talk about the fear of Jews being diminished to a, a point of non-humanity to where they can be slaughtered in the name of a cause, an ideology. I do talk about all this. In this country, I have an understanding, I believe, of what's going on in this country. I don't necessarily 
claim to have any understanding of the evolution of politics, territory, or conflict. I do know that that region, I don't see any solution or hope, and I don't really think the outcome is going to be anything but fucking awful. I don't know how else to really talk about this. And I know there's death all around and innocent people killed on all sides. But I do stand with Jews. I'll be in Bellingham, Washington at the Mount Baker Theater for one show on Saturday, October 14th as part of the Bellingham Exit Festival. I'll be at Largo in L.A. next week, Monday, October 16th. Portland, Oregon, a late show was added to my dates at Helium on Sunday, October 22nd. Boston, I'm at the TD Garden for Comics Come Home on Saturday, November 4th. Denver, Colorado, I'll be at the Comedy Works South for four shows, November 17th and 18th. And now I've added some new dates for Los Angeles in December. I'm at Dynasty Typewriter on December 1st, 13th, and 28th. I'm at the Elysian on December 6th, 15th, and 22nd. And Largo again on December 12th and January 9th. Go to WTFpod.com slash tour for tickets. I did not mention earlier because I just wanted to say what I was in my mind and in my heart at the time, but Arnold Schwarzenegger is on the show today. He's here. He's got a new book out. It's called Be Useful, Seven Tools for Life. You can get it right now wherever you get your book. But uh, yeah, I never assumed that I was going to talk to Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I did. There was talk of it happening at another time, but it didn't happen. And I was like, all right. So, you know, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, he's Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's, there is no other one international superstar. No matter what you think of him, he is singular. He is one of one. Everybody, I would say, in the world knows who Arnold Schwarzenegger is. So, of course, I was going to talk to him because I he seemed, at first I was like, can he talk? Of course he can. He was he was governor. But there's, there's just many layers to this guy. You know, there's the Arnold movie star. There's the Arnold politician. There's the Arnold human who is moving through a certain amount of humility and contrition around his, you know, personal behaviors, there's a historic Arnold, but I do think in this conversation, you do get a spectrum of the Arnolds. And, uh, and it was, it was great because he's fucking hilarious, but the entire experience was hilarious. You know, I'm waiting for him. He's running. I can't remember if it was late or early, probably early. I was told that he might have a security team. There was a publicist. And then there was this problem, you know, out back here, there's a construction going on directly behind uh, the garage here on the property next door of the house. I'm not exactly sure what they're doing. I should, uh, I should find out. But on the day Arnold was coming, I was already kind of nervous about it because I don't think he's necessarily a controversial figure. He is to some people, but everyone's got an opinion of him. But uh, most people grew up with Arnold Schwarzenegger in those fucking movies and they made an impact. He will be forever the Terminator to some people or whatever movie you choose. But Arnold is singular. And I watched the documentary and I, I got a sense of him. And, you know, he is funny and he's self-aware 
enough to be funny. So I got this problem. There's all this noise and I'm freaking out. And I tell Brendan, I don't know what we're going to do. They're hammering. You can hear it. And I, I, I was just hoping for some free zone of, from the noise when Arnold came. And Brendan was like, you know, just go give him some money. Give him a thousand bucks to cut it, you know, to stop it, you know, for an hour. And, you know, before Arnold got, Arnold got here, you know, I went around. I talked to some of the workers. I don't know where the owner of the house was, but I tried to communicate. You know, I talked to somebody, the one guy, uh, the guy in charge. And I'm like, hey, man, from 1230 to 130, can we not have noise? I'm going to be talking to Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I, I just need their, I need it to be quiet if it's possible. Is that possible? I didn't offer him any money. And I don't think he was really processing what, what I said. He goes, he just said, you know, 1230 to 130. I'm like, yeah. He's like, okay. And I'm like, well, that was simple. And, but I didn't know if they, you know, there was part of me that sort of like, did you hear though? I'm going to be talking to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, and I don't think that registered, but so now I, I at least got, you know, a, a promise that, or, or an agreement that they would not be hammering. And then he drives up, he's sitting out in the car up front and I'm like, hi, what's, how you doing Arnold? He's like, hello, how are you, Mark? But he's on, he's FaceTiming on his iPad with somebody in Austria about getting a jacket from a hotel there for a benefit. And then he gets out and he tells me, yeah, I do a benefit, uh, you know, every year. I can't do the, but he's like, this year is Oktoberfest theme. And I'm like, you're going to wear lederhosen? He's like, oh yeah. Uh, but he was trying to get the jacket for somebody in the, who, who was a, don a donor. I, I don't know. But all I know is that within five minutes, I knew that Arnold was going to be wearing leader, lederhosen shortly. Not that day, but, but shortly. And it, it all made sense to me, but nonetheless, he goes into the garage, he comes in here, he sits down. And then I want to make sure that the, the guys on the other side of the fence there who were pounding away at the structure directly behind the one I'm in now and the one me and Arnold were in, were ready to stop. And it's hard. There's a trellis and then there's some trees. So you really have to struggle to kind of look through that fence. And, and the fence is sort of like, it comes up to where your head is. So, you know, you, you, your head would be seeing over the fence, but you have to see through the trellis. So I, I lean in and I go, okay, you guys, can we... Uh, can we, can we do the quiet thing now? And they're like, okay. And I'm like, Arnold Schwarzenegger is, is here. And then one of the guys was like, what? He's here now? And I'm like, yeah, he's, he's here and I'm going to talk to him. Schwarz Arnold Schwarzenegger? And then like, you know, there was just all of a sudden a buzz. I'm like, yeah, he's here. And, 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 and they're like, where? Where is he? And so these, you know, three heads come up to the trellis and now uh, Arnold's already in here and I'm out there and I'm going, Arnold, Arnold, come out and say, just say hi to these guys because they're, they're working over here and they're going to be quiet. And he comes out and he just, he leans out the door to where these guys could see him and goes, I'll be back. And they went crazy with excitement, crazy with excitement. I was like, oh my God, I've seen him all my life, you know. So that was... Uh, you know, that was a lot easier than paying $1,000. Not that I would have minded. So then, you know, her, Arnold and I just, we got into it, which you'll hear. And then afterwards, when he was done, you know, one of the guys, two of them came out. They were just waiting out front to just meet him, to just look at him. And just to say that they, they, they love his movies. And it was, uh, it was kind of beautiful, to be honest with you. This guy's had an impact in a lot of different ways. Uh, no matter how or what you think of them. And I think we did all right. So this is me.
talking to Arnold Schwarzenegger. But before I, I cut to that, I, I, I do want to say for a more in-depth thing, if you want to hear bonus episodes, sign up for the full Marin, which you can get by going to the link in the episode description or by going to WTFpod.com and clicking WTF+. Plus. I de- uh, debrief with Brendan about Arnold uh, on the, the latest one. Uh, and if you're signed up for WTF Plus by October 15th, you'll be eligible to win one of 30 signed tour posters. These are posters from my tours throughout the years, all with original artwork. Uh, they're not available for sale. If you're signed up by October 15th, you'll automatically be in the drawing for the giveaway. And again, the book, Be Useful, Seven Tools for Life. You can get it wherever you get books. And this is uh, this is me and Arnold. <laughs> How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Yeah? Why do I look bad? <laughs> no, you look good. No, but I mean, the way you, you ask is in a very suspicious way. Why it's did like I? How you feeling? It's kind of like, uh, I look like I'm wiping out very soon or something like that. No, you don't look like that at all. But, you know, I did some reading, you know, and I, I read the book. And, I, you know, right. I know you've, uh, you know you've, you've had some obstacles physically. And I just want to make sure you're feeling all right. Can you believe that? I mean, the first thing he talks about is about the obstacles. How about the, the victories? Wait. Not the obstacles. I mean, what kind of a person are you? I'm an obstacle guy. Oh, obstacle guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I'm the yeah. guy that uh, realizes there are obstacles, yeah. and I analyze the obstacles, and then I talk about the obstacles until that I get bored with it, and they go away. That's my <laughs> approach. Yeah, this, I think it's a very good approach. I, how can I criticize it? It worked. <laughs> it Everything okay. works for you. I mean, you're the number one podcaster in the world, and you have... Uh, real, you know what I like about what? your life? What? And I can relate to that because okay. I've done it several times. And that is kind of reinventing yourself. You know, yeah. Because you come from, you're a comedian. Yeah. You were a very well-known comedian. And I think that at one point or the other, you decided probably. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing that. Yes. You know, so you can answer that for yeah. yourself. But you, it, it seems to me you say to yourself, maybe, you know, the comedy thing, uh, I get to be over the hill very soon on that one. Uh, I'm going to start something new. And what? your vision was yeah. to be a podcaster, not knowing. Mm. But, I mean, I think you knew that podcasting is really where the future is, but no one else did. Well, so I'd, you were I'd, out there by yourself. I'd like to take credit for that. I'd you like should. To, I, well, I do, but I don't think I knew. See, And the, also the other thing is I wasn't a popular comedian. I was at the end of my rope. I was in a garage, and I didn't no, know what No, no, you were popular, but I mean, you thought that you're in the end of your rope, but in fact, you were not, because I don't think there is a age limit uh, to comedy. I mean, Milton Berle, when I worked with Milton Berle, he was already in his 70s, then in his 80s. Did he show you his, his uh, dick? I didn't have to see it to know about it. <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, I was I was doing a eulogy at his funeral. You did? Yeah, and I said, I said, look, even the son of a bitch is he's dead. Yeah. I still had a difficult time putting it at the top on his casket. I said, because the weenie was sticking out too far. It was stuff like that. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, he, he was known for that. I mean, yeah, yeah. Some effect he even said, he says, yeah, people always say, I have such a long dick and all this stuff. Yeah. And he says, but it's it's not true. He says, even though right now, while I'm standing out here, yeah. I have the kitchen help jerking me off. You know, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. he always had some <laughs> stupid joke about his dick. The, the big dick joke. Yeah. Well, that was it. Well, you know, when I'm going through the book, how much of that 
because you're saying this to me, but I, I didn't know, I didn't make a decision because of age or any other reason other than desperation to get into a medium that nobody knew about because I, I happened to be good at talking on a microphone. So I didn't, I didn't have foresight. I lucked out. It was good cosmic timing. But in your belief system, is that, does that mean that I really did know? Well, I believe that luck, when you say lucked out, yeah. I think luck is when talent meets opportunity. Sure. You know, and so to, to me, I think that the very fact that you picked something that you could have picked a hundred other things. But I didn't you picked I couldn't something, do anything else. <laughs> no, but you picked yeah. something that became great. Yeah. If it was you that motivated it, people said, this is actually interesting. Wait, look how many people he can reach. Yeah. More than, you know, than any of those television shows. Yeah. So why don't we go and do interviews with that guy rather than being on a television show and traveling all the way to New York and all this stuff? Yeah. So I think you maybe tapped into something that maybe you did not know, but you guessed and you felt that this could be really great. Otherwise, you wouldn't have done it. And then uh, other people copied it. And now everyone, there's a lot of people that are doing it, but no one you know, can reach uh, yeah. your kind of talent and the kind of yeah. guests that you have. And all of the, let me brag a little bit about you. Okay. Don't keep saying nah. I'm saying yeah. 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 Jesus Christ. Yeah. I'm saying, no, I, I'm, I, I was excited about coming over because I said to myself, this guy is really a pioneer. Yeah. It's like I was in bodybuilding. You know? so it's always kind of it takes a little bit more balls to be out there, the first one. Yeah. And to do something. And you don't know yeah. if this is working or that's not. That's right. But you hope for it. Right. You know? So I think that's what it was. And you did well. It did well, fantastic. I, well, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. But, but, you know, in, in looking at the, the system of the seven, who decides it's seven tools? At the publisher. Yeah. The fucking idiots. You know, I say I give them 10 rules and they say, well, yeah, we only can do 268 pages. I say, why? What is the limit to the 268? What's the magic? Well, because it's your fault. Yeah. I say, well, how can it be my fault? It's says, because you wanted to be below a certain price so it's affordable for everyone. I say, of course that's important. I say, kids should be able to afford it. You know, uh, women that the, the, the mothers that want to buy it for their kids or something, yeah. they should be able to afford it. They say everyone should be able to afford it. So we don't make it, want to make it too expensive. Well, then we can only do 268 pages. So uh, there's seven seven tours what, to life. What are the other three? Are the other three where you say no, like it could be 15? I mean, there's this the endless amount where, of lessons. Are there ones where you say like, well, if it doesn't work out, maybe you're just not good enough? I just say, say, say <laughs> keep enough room. I just say cannot. Ram my fist in your stomach and break your goddamn spine. You know, whatever the, the movie lines are. Yeah, yeah. Get to the chopper. You know, they always say on the other line, was the chopper eight, chapter eight would have yeah. been. I said, get to the chopper. You know. My friend thought you should, uh, you, you could have named each chapter after a different muscle group. Or a different movie line. Sure. You know, anything you want. Exactly. But was your stuff. Just one chapter is true lies. You're right. That would have been interesting. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, but, you know, you you frame it that, like, you know, you always had this this will of positivity to to keep pushing forward. Are you going to tell me that you've never felt, you know, desperate, alone, angry, and unable to see a way forward? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you kidding me? I wake up sometimes depressed. I have sometimes, uh, you know, where I feel like, okay, this is uh, coming to an end. This yeah. is not happening. Yeah, I go through all the same things as everyone else does. 
the key thing is just how do you deal with it? Yeah. You know, because sure. I think that we all go through uh, times where when we fail or like you said earlier, or times where we have trouble, times yeah. where you struggle, times where you feel like you're not being heard uh, or things are not going exactly your way. Yeah. But what I do is I always reach for those tools, those basic tools that always helped me in life to uh, then get out of that yeah. and to become an end successful and to reach my goals and to kind of declare victory at the end of the day. Well, let me ask you a question because, you know, the one thing that that I tend to, to focus on that I don't know that you focus on is that, you know, what about, do you ever look back at your life and say, like, I have to, you know, process this trauma you know, I have to deal with this psychologically, you know, like whatever your relationship was with your father, you know, do, do you do you do you work on that in other ways other than just, you know, plowing through? No, because I just look at it in, in a much more positive way, because I have to recognize as tough as my father was and as tough as my childhood was, it was the very thing that got me out of Austria, that got me out of that everyday life that all my other friends went into, you know, to become kind of an employee for the government or to be a garbage collector or to be a plumber, but whatever it is. And they stayed over there and they were kind of like looking forward to their pension right. uh, at 65. No. I was able to kind of run away from that yeah. and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of here. I cannot take it any longer. And I left. And I went into the military early. I went into Germany to be an instructor in the bodybuilding gym. And then eventually, when I won the world championships in bodybuilding, I came to America. And then it came, made my life in America. But it was that motivation and that will came all because of my upbringing and because of my father and my mother and the strictness and, and all of that Because stuff. you wanted to get away? I wanted to get away. I wanted to start my own life. I don't want to have that life. But do you ever have these <clears> moments where you, you think like, you know, well, I've got these things that you're focusing on the positive, but is there ever a point where you focus and realize like there are these negative things I got? No. Because I, I don't feel the negative. Yeah. I, even, even with all of the drama that I went through with my father, I can say that I look back at my father and I have pictures all over my house of my father. You do? Yeah. I, I, I love my father. I mean, I wish that just for one hour he could wake up and see what has happened in my life and what is going on in the world and all of those kind of things. Now, I, I think that was that's as good as he could do. What do you, you think know? he would say about your life and the things in the world? Yeah, well, the first thing he would just say is, are you useful? Yeah. You know, are you doing something? Are you helping other people? Or are you just screwing around or something? You know, so he would analyze it in a serious way and stuff. But I think he will be very proud and he will be absolutely delighted. And especially since he also always talked about, yeah, America is a great place. When I came home and I saw this great footage, documentary footage in high school about yeah. America, and I said, oh, my God, they have, like, six-lane highways. They have this huge cars with fins sticking yeah, out of yeah, the yeah. back. They have the Empire State Building that's 10 times taller than any building in Austria and blah, blah, blah. They have the Empire, they, they, they have the Golden Gate Bridge. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so my father said, oh, yeah, it's a beautiful country. It's fantastic. It's this, but, uh, you know, just dream about it because it's all we're going to do. Dream about it. So he sort and of— I said to him, I said, I have to go there. 
I think that I was born to be in America. She says, oh, don't be ridiculous. What do you think? They're going to wait for you over yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. They have plenty of idiots over there. They don't need another one and stuff like do, that. So do you, you will be negative about it. Do you think part of your drive, though, to, to sort of succeed and to, uh, you know, to become self-actualized in the purest way possible, which is, you know, through your body, uh, do you think that in some ways that was to, to kind of show him? No, it was, I, I think that we all want to show our parents and show off Look how great I am. Yeah. That's why I wanted them always to come to weightlifting meets yeah. to see how strong I am. But they had no interest in it. It's not like in <laughs> did, the days. Did days that hurt your feelings? America. No, because in those days, yeah. I did not know that parents could do that. Yeah. See, because when I came to America, yeah. and when I brought up uh, with Maria our kids, yeah. that's when I learned for the first time that over here, parents go and see everything that the kids do. Support They go to recitals. Yeah. They go to the, the singing things. They, they're supportive. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to the football games, to the baseball games, yeah. to the basketball games, to everything. So we did that. And I always that's when I started thinking about, it's funny, my parents never went to one single event. Yeah, I think they went to the Mr. Olympia contest that I was competing in in 1972. Just, it was just before my father died. They both came to this competition in Essen, in Germany, and I won the Mr. Olympia contest. So I think they saw some of my bodybuilding success, but that was it. Were they proud? They were very, very proud. They just walked around very, very proud. And my mother, you know, she uh, was one of those that she wanted my trophies. So I sent her my trophies always. And then she ran around for, for weeks in the village yeah. in Austria and to show off, look at my son, won another hey, trophy. Yeah. And guess what? Yeah. I got them into bodybuilding. Oh, she, my mother didn't get me into bodybuilding. Focus, yeah. right? But I mean, this is what she said. Well, she said, she says, were... it was me. I gave him the discipline. Right. I remember getting him the honey and I scrambled the eggs for him and mixed it with the oatmeal. And then I gave him the food to get him really strong. I had to do all this for my, you know, I even sewed his posing trunk, which is true. She made my posing trunks yeah. because the trunks that I saw out there, the bathing suit said was not good enough. So I, I said, we got to make them small. All here. Yeah. I got to have them in black and not in brown and blah, 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 whatever. So she sold them. So she, of course, ran around and she says, she it was created all her. me. It was so all she, her. So the funny thing was, yeah. in 1977, yeah. I'm at the Golden Globe Awards. Yeah. And I win now the Golden Globe for Best Acting Debut. In Pumping Iron? For the iron? movie. Oh, no, for it no, was for Stay Hungry. No, yeah, right, right. But it was a combination, Pumping Iron yeah. and Stay Hungry, but it was for Stay Hungry officially. Yeah. And so we are sitting at this table and Sophia Loren was sitting there also. Oh, yeah. And so she had her mother. Yeah. And then Sylvester Stallone was sitting there. Yeah. And he had his mother. Right. So we all were sitting there with our mothers, and they had a debate over how much they helped us. You know, how we were all, <laughs> Sophia Loren's mother said, you know, Sophia, she was shy. I had to do everything. Yeah. I had to go and suggest to her she should go and take some pictures. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and yeah. often and my mother said, Oh, Arnold. Arnold didn't want to train at all. I said to him, Do go to the gym now. You know, and then and still <laughs> yeah. what mother says, she says, I created him. 
My son was a fucking idiot. But I mean, I, I, I taught him. I said, go, go to take some acting classes and become a star. So we always laugh about that, that all of our mothers were showing off and competing about how they all were helpful to our careers. But in the meantime, they didn't do anything. Was that the, Nothing. Begin- was that the beginning of the Stallone rivalry? No, no. The, the, in, in those days, uh, we didn't rival at all. We were kind of supportive. As a matter of fact, you offered me a movie back in the 70s. Oh, yeah. The rivalry then became later on. What movie? Oh, well, it started out when. What you know, movie he, did he offer you in the seventies? Um, Hell's Kitchen or something like yeah. that. It was one of the movies that he was writing and working on. Yeah. Uh, but then he goes. So he and I got along. We had the same agents, the same lawyers, and everything the same. <laughs> but the competition then came in the eighties when I think uh, my movie started to become more and bigger and bigger. And, yeah, uh, yeah. But he was always way ahead of me, yeah. uh, career-wise, and money-wise. You know, while I was making a million dollars a movie, he already was making ten million dollars a movie. Yeah. So he was ahead. But I mean, eventually I caught up. Yeah. And that's when when the shit hit the fan. <laughs> you know, so he, he didn't like that. I didn't like him. You know, kind of all of a sudden getting into my turf and having a ripped body. Yeah. All of a sudden he was like out there with the right. I remember People that. Saying, I remember can that. You see, everyone could walk to me and says, "Can you believe?" Stallone's body. Yeah. I mean, do you see how ripped he is? Yeah. Do you see his upper pectoral muscle and the lower pectoral muscle? It was totally separated. Yeah. I mean, this is abs. I mean, that guy had an eight pack. And I said, well, am, I, am I chopped liver? What about my body? You know, and so it was like he was getting all the attention with the body. So, and I was getting all the attention about the movies that yeah, was like, yeah. and the action. So we started kind of despising each other. It, we, we just couldn't coexist. It was, it was it, one of the stupid things where he looked at me and kind of like as the enemy. I looked at him as like the enemy. And, you know, I said to myself, this is it. This is all out war. Yeah. I said, if Sly has a a 12-inch knife, yeah. I'm going to have a 20-inch knife. <laughs> if Sly kills... 16 people in his next movie. I'm going to kill 36 people in a movie. You know, this is how it went. If he uses, you know, this uh, M47, I'm going to use a machine gun from a helicopter, a big monster machine gun that you cannot even carry around, and I would be carrying around casually. Yeah. So it was like, if he makes $100 million at the box office, I'm going to make $150 million. So this is was crazy stuff. But the, compo- the, the competition drives you. Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, you know, we realized that it was kind of a game for us. That Because deep down inside, I respected him. And I thought that uh, everything he did was really great. And he was like multi-talented. And I appreciated all that because I didn't have that. I didn't have the skills to write scripts. I didn't have the skills to kind of like direct movies like he did. Yeah. And all that. So, so I said, that's really cool. But then would fuck him. I'm going to go still <laughs> outdo him and stuff. You know, so there was, there was the, the whole idea. But I mean, in the end, when we became friends again because of Planet Hollywood. But you know, you see, you're, Planet you're, Hollywood was like all of a sudden we had to kind of promote the, those restaurants sure. together. Yeah. We flew around the world together. And I was, so we were finally back but again. You, but I think the same what, thing. what the, I think your, your, uh, the thing that you have that he essentially doesn't have is a sense of humor. Well, no, he, that, that's not correct. I tell you, Sly has an extraordinary sense of humor. Not on screen. No, <laughs> the, 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 you're absolutely correct. He does not able. He's not able to put it like that on the screen. But in life, when you fly around with him, we I laughed with him more than with anybody when he was telling jokes and funny stuff about his childhood, about his mother, and everything. Yeah, yeah. It was hilarious. He is very, very funny, and I think that on his show. Uh, 
Dawson King. Yeah. Um, I haven't watched it. It is actually, you can see that his sense of humor. Yeah, because I think now he's able to do, to play that out much more natural than he used to do. And also in his reality show that he has with his kids and with his wife. Right. Because it's, he it's also, you can see his sense of A little humor. more intimate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And But you knew from the beginning almost. At some point you took a turn where you're like, I'm funny and we got we to gotta work with it. I always, I always thought it was funny <laughs> and I always thought that I had a sense of humor. And I was also able to laugh at myself, right? At the stupidity of, of it all, you know, yeah, the yeah. Competition and the bodybuilding. I said, I said, "How funny is that? That you're oiled up with little posing trunks, and you're standing up on stage in front of five thousand people to say, say, 'Look, I'm the most muscular man in the world.' It, it's, it's so so stupid. But I mean, it, it, it's the things that you do. It's no, it's it's the same thing as like someone having a golf ball, yeah, and going through eighteen holes, yeah." And playing golf. Right. I mean, and then what iron should we have? Okay, let's get the three. No, no, I, need, I think you need the five. No, no, let me take the wood. And he said, what the fuck? I mean, it's like, they take this stuff seriously. We all take those things so seriously and, 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 and in a serious way. And I think that's what makes the world go around. It makes it actually fun, well, life fun. Well, we always will be kind of kids in a way. Well, yeah, I, I think if you don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah, exactly. You, did you ever, like, was there ever, uh, did you and Stallone ever talk about the uh, stop where my mom will shoot that, you know, because you tell that story about yeah, well, he, he setting actually, him up. Yeah, he actually mentioned it in his interviews, and then people started, I never talked about it. Yeah. But he mentioned it in an interview, and then people started asking me about it, and I said, "Yeah, he's absolutely correct. I was like a, a, a setup, and uh, you knew yeah. it was bad, so you I, told your agents you didn't want to do it." But well, I said to my agent, "You know, you kind of have to play it smart because yeah. you, you cannot say everything to your agent either, yeah. because they're fucking idiots too, right? I mean, <laughs> so they, they, they they kind of will blow it. Yeah. So you know, so I couldn't really say to my agent, yeah. no, let's set up slide because yeah. then he calls his agent, who is maybe his buddy, yeah. and then he will blow blow it all, right? right. So I said, I'm I'm somewhat interested in that. Yeah. I said that the, the ending is really spicy. I said I think it could be really good. Uh, let's let's just see what offer we get. And then the, the studio would call back Paul and says, yeah. well, if Arnold doesn't want to do it, let him know that there is already other people that are on top of that. Uh, like Sylvester Stallone, I would like to do it. I said, oh, no. Oh, please hold off. Don't give me this lie. Uh, you know, I want to have it. And yeah, yeah. Said, they say, well, maybe you're too late if you don't call us back by tonight. So I don't call them back. And then the next thing I know is they call me back and say, well, you waited too long. Now Sly has, you know, <laughs> so I would, I would, you know, let the Sly people know. I want this so badly. Yeah. And it it's such a great script. Yeah. And then they got it and yeah. they did the movie. And it was terrible. I was like, uh, horrifying. <laughs> I also knew that the director couldn't pull it off. Yeah. You know, there's certain directors that are not with the program when it comes to Comedy, sure. Then maybe like I was very fortunate with Ivan Reitman. Yeah, I did Twins, and when I did Kindergarten Cop, and uh, you know, but not everyone is that fortunate. I was very fortunate, to be honest with you, uh, to have great directors. I mean, think about you know, guys like uh, uh, John McTurnan sure. who did The Predator, yeah, uh, or Jim Cameron, Cameron, they did The Terminator One, Terminator Two, and. True you guys are still buddies. Oh yeah, he came over to my house yesterday. I was over there. He was over there for two hours and yeah. was schmoozing and talking about this, uh, you know, Avatar movie that he's working on. The, the third, nine, the, third the nine one. Avatar movies. The third one is working on. But isn't he doing like five at once? Well, 
he figures it out however long these uh, movies are hot yeah. and people are interested in yeah. but here's enough in a can yeah. that he can do probably 600 yeah. <laughs> a TV series the longest TV series ever you know but I mean I always love talking to him because he's so smart about everything yeah. and so he's, he's fun to talk to but you've always been good about that I mean you're not somebody who you always seek the advice of people that you respect and yeah, are yeah that's why in, in my book I, I talk about that you know just you know, the mirror uh, shut, chapter. You, you know, you, you shut your mouth and open your mind. And there's one chapter in there because I feel it is so important. And I remember, and everything, if it has to do with when I came to America in the beginning, yeah. to kind of learn, I had to kind of like shut up and just learn how did the Americans do business? How did the Americans make money? Yeah. How did the Americans live here? How does it all work? How does it operate? It's so different than the, in, in Europe. And so I had to kind of just be quiet, sit back, and just kind of observe. And that's what I did. I went to school. I took the advice of Joe Weider, who brought me to America, the guy that published the muscle magazines. What was that guy like? Uh, he was fantastic. He was like a real promoter. Yeah. I mean, he made me feel like bodybuilding is the hottest thing in America when, in fact, it was not. Yeah. It, no one knew what it was. People always came up to me in America and they said, hey, are you a wrestler? Yeah. Are you a bouncer? Are you a football player? I said, have you ever thought about asking me if I'm a bodybuilder? A bodybuilder? Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, I never thought about it's, it. It's okay. So I knew I had to hire a publicist yeah. to go and publicize, not just myself, but to, hire, to publicize bodybuilding. Because bodybuilders were not traditionally outgoing and they didn't do interviews with the press. They felt suspicious of the press, that the press would attack them yeah. and would write bad notes. And so it didn't really click. So I had to kind of like hire publicists, go out and start, you know, and working with these guys, uh, Charles Gaines and George Butler to do Pumping Iron, the book Pumping yeah. Iron, and then eventually the documentary Pumping Iron, and then to do the movie Stay Hungry, which was about bodybuilding. And uh, all of those kind of things we, we were doing in order to publicize bodybuilding. And I remember Rolling Stone magazine sent even to South Africa writers and photographers, Annie Libowitz, she they sent down yeah. to photograph me when I was winning the Mr. Olympia and all this. And they had this seven-page story in Rolling Stone magazine, Jan Winner, you know, yeah, he sure. was the, the publisher. And he said, we were very thankful that there were people that all of a sudden saw bodybuilding as what it was, which was a very good sport and an interesting sport. And they started publicizing it, and it became huge. And uh, then in the 70s, it exploded, and then in the 80s, he got into movies, and all of a sudden, you know, every action hero had to look like a muscular guy, well, like heroic. Still, there, there's still sort of different versions of bodybuilding, but oh, it's, yeah. you have to be ripped, you know? Oh, yeah, of course you have to be ripped. It's, yeah, it's I, all about size, yeah. definition, muscle separation, and the perfection of the way you have created your body. It's, it's like sculpting. You're sculpting on yourself. Well, I've got I've got some self acceptance around that. You know, I work out, but I'm not gonna. I know you do. Yep. <laughs> I can tell your triceps sticking out of this shirt. You see yeah. it? Of course, I can you see. Do. You yeah. notice right away. Huh? You're very smart because I mean, people they don't see you because it's a radio show. Yeah. But I mean that the fact is that I should describe it that you have a striped shirt. Yes. And stripes automatically make the body look bigger. Yeah. Well, that's so, why I, I so had. If a, you're fat, yeah, I would always say to people, don't wear stripes. 
because just wear salad colors <laughs> and black. Yeah. But you, you have a very colorful shirt yeah. on, there's stripes, yeah. and that's why the, your you can see the tricep. Of, oh, yeah, yeah. Of course I can see. What do you think, I'm blind? <laughs> I can see your rear deltoids popping up. I can see your pectoral muscles. I see, oh, now you're flexing the lats. Yeah. Look at that. How cute. And the intercostals and the serratos are popping out. What the hell is going on here? Well, I had a higher, like uh, a bodybuilding pose uh, up in uh, here? Yeah. I had to hire a stylist to get the right shirt because oh, I knew yeah, you were yeah. coming over. I, uh, I wanted to make I sure. I know it. Yeah. It's a Missoni shirt. The, it, it's, it's cheaper than that. But, uh, <laughs> but, but like, going back, because I want to talk a little bit about how you've shifted your, your, the, the way you see things. You, you never, you're not, you grew up with religion or you didn't? Yeah. My mother uh, literally made us go to church every Sunday. Yeah. And then we had religious, uh, you know, sessions in school, in elementary school, and then in high school. And all that. So religious yeah. uh, kind of education was very important. We went to Catholic school and all that. But yeah. I have to say, I was never a big fan yeah. of going to church. You know, yeah. it was like, but the, the funny thing is, we do the things that we do when we grow up. When my kids were born, I went and dragged them to, to church. Yeah, we went to Saint Monica Church every Sunday and through religious holidays and through Christmas and all that stuff. Easter, we went to all the church days and everything with the kids together. So that's what you do. And uh, but what about uh, the God part? The God, I believe in God. You do? Oh, yeah, no, I believe in God. When did that happen? I, I always did. Yeah? It, it's just that I'm not a big believer in religion. Right. Or in, in, well, I should say, I know that you have to have an organized religion in order to get organized. Yeah. You have to build the churches yeah. and to do all of this. I Community. understand all that, but I, I just never was that much into it on my own to go to church and to do all that do stuff. Do you believe in heaven? So, uh, no. No. no, no but you believe in something you know, bigger no, than ourselves. I ourself. believe that there's some higher power that yeah. is creating all this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, it's it's the, the rest of it, I, I've, I have not really gotten to believe in that. Yeah. You know, it's just uh, my common sense at this point tells me you know, there is there, there is maybe a heaven, but it's not uh, the same way as we think. That right. We will see each other, right. and, and we will be in the same form, right? Than we are right now. Yeah. But uh, there is there is probably a heaven, and there's probably a hell, and all of that stuff. So it could easily be. But I think when people say, "I will see you up there," I say, "Well." <laughs> Let's hope so. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because right. it, I, I think it would be great. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we all then eternally forever would see each other up there? Yeah. I mean, that would be great. But I, I guess. Mean, I, 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 I just don't yeah. see it yet. Yeah, yeah. You know, not yet. But I mean, maybe someday I will see it. Yeah, yeah but you, you won't know. Yeah, exactly, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think that some part of your drive was because you were so – because there's no – better you know metaphor for self-actualization than bodybuilding and and there's this idea that like you know given that you grew up with some chaos and you talk about you know the sadness and the the post-war misery of of austria at the time and your father's torment and everything else and all the other men that there was some way of of self-actualizing and rising above the chaos because it seems like you know if if i've read correctly that you were pretty Charming, diplomatic guy. You, you try to make things okay. You know, I imagine that yeah. all comes from your family, right? Like, well, I mean, um, y- you know, I'm a creation of 
of, of, of kind of like, you need to survive. Right. And uh, when you're out there by yourself, I mean, I, I left Austria when I was 19. Yeah. And I went to Germany. And I had to survive. So you, so you try to figure out, you know, it's kind of personality. Yeah. A personality is a persona that you adopt. Right. In order to get by. Right. And to survive. Yeah. And so to me, it was always kind of like through humor, um, through having, uh, you know, being able to laugh things off and to be more casual. Yeah. And to be more accepting and yeah. more inclusive and stuff. Those are the kind of things that help me to get through life and the rules that I talk about in the book, you know, to be open-minded, to listen to people, to learn rather than just a talk, that we learn much more when we listen than when we talk. And all, all this stuff, you know, I figured out and having a very clear vision. What helped me right from the beginning was that I had a vision. I had a very clear vision of what I wanted to do is I wanted to be a bodybuilding champion. I saw myself as a Mr. Universe like Reg Park sure, sure. and Steve Reeves, the guys that were doing Hercules movies that I saw in those days. So I saw that, and so that's what I chased, really. And uh, it was the motivating force. It is the thing that gave me discipline. It made the thing kind of make me enjoy working out five hours a day in the gym because so many people don't enjoy what they're doing. They don't enjoy their work. Remember that 80, 78% of the people in America hate their jobs. Yeah. So I never hated but, but also, like, you know, you got to a level, there's like that famous quip of you talking about how, you know, you're coming all the time. Right. That, you know, yeah, who doesn't want that? So, like, not everybody's going to get to that level where you're just so, you know, ripped and you can feel the blood pumping into your veins. It, it was almost like an addiction, I would imagine. Well, but neither did I. <laughs> but you I mean, it was it. a good line. Yeah. Because so, so you have to understand that when I was in bodybuilding in America here yeah. in the early 70s, I was always very upset about the fact that here's Joe Namath and O.J. Simpson and all those guys playing football, and they are in the paper and on television yeah. every day. Yeah. What about me? <laughs> I say I'm as great in my sport as they are in their sport. But you had to define it as a sport. You but had to I mean, establish but it. But define it as a sport or not as a sport. Remember that even chess players, when Bobby Fischer yeah. and... and, and, and Boris, uh, Spassky. Boris Spassky. When they were competing, they were in the media everywhere yeah. and people were debating, is chess really a sport? And blah, yeah. blah, blah. No, it has nothing to do with it. It has to do with that, that in America, football was huge. Everyone watched it. So the stars got a lot of attention. They got a million dollars then already for commercial. Yeah. We got nothing. I had to go into bricklaying jobs to make money and to make a living. Yeah. So was, it was a totally different ballgame. So to me, it was kind of like I had to kind of think about how can I get headlines? Yeah. How can I get into the media? Yeah. How can I get into magazines? So it was to come up with outrageous statements. Okay. I said to myself, if I go and I say, a, a pump yeah. is better than coming. Yeah. People would say, what did he say? <laughs> this guy's really out there. We should have him on our show. Okay. And so that's how I got on TV. So you weren't, wanted me to say that on did, TV. Did, did, so I didn't give a shit. I said it <laughs> left and right. I said, yeah. I said, I pump up. I pump in the morning. I pump up in the afternoon. I pump up in the evening. So I'm coming day and night. You know, things like that. I would say, you say oh, this guy's great for TV. Yeah. This guy's great. Let's interview him. So then the LA Times did an interview with me. They called me the Babe Ruth of bodybuilding. So that's how I got, you know, Popularity, but then there was a lot of guys in gyms waiting for the coming. They just were, 
They wanted to feel it. Let them. So a lot of people then went to the gym. Yeah. And they said, well, this is great. I'm, I'm going to join the gym. If that's the case, I want to join the gym. Yeah. So I said, you know, probably when they came to complain, I said, the problem, you have not yet learned how to pump up your muscles. Right. I said, you have to be really into it. Yeah. You have to be inside the bicep. Yeah. It'll be inside your chest when you pump up. The can it just go through the motion? Yeah. So you will never come yeah. to where you're going. I said, this is like hopeless. <laughs> so anyway, so then, I, then they, they started really getting serious about working out and getting the pump and searching for the pump. When did you that. start to, <clears throat> I guess, was it around, you know, when you became a bigger business investing in real estate? When did you become sort of politically activated in terms of wanting to be involved in in politics, well, that happened uh, much later. But I, look, I was um, very interested in learning about it when I started dating Maria. I remember in the in the late seventies. Yeah, she took me home to Washington to to meet her parents. I went up to hang yeah. sport and all that stuff. And uh, when I was hanging out with them, they always talked about policy yeah. and about solving problems. Right. How do we get a better education system? What do we do with after-school programs? How do we create more preschool, pro- uh, you know, kind of uh, programs where government takes care of the preschools so that yeah. parents can drop off the kids when they go to work and all that stuff? So I listened to all of those things. and I thought it was kind of like something that I have never thought about. How do we solve other people's problems? Because I was, was kind of like thinking about solving my own problem. About How your do chest I become a and star? Triceps. How do I become the biggest bodybuilder, the most famous bodybuilder? How can I get into movies? How can I make it's totally self-centered? Of well, it was it was kind of like first you have to build yourself in order to be able to help others. So. You were thinking I, but, that? Always thinking that, yeah. That I have to first build myself, build myself. But now hearing the Shrivers and the yeah. Kennedys talk about always, you know, helping other people and stuff, I, I, I thought it's very attractive. I thought it's great to start thinking about that. So I started thinking about it. Yeah. Then I got involved in Special Olympics, and then I started becoming the international coach of Special Olympics, traveling around the world and promoting Special Olympics. And then eventually I started, you know, President Bush, uh, I remember in 1990, appointed me to be the chairman of the President's Council on Fitness. But did you have a, a party affiliation at that time? Yeah, yeah, I was always a Republican. I was, was But with all the Kennedys around, you, you know, how did you fundamentally clash with that? What was your point of contention with Democratic policy versus Republican? Well, there was no clash. Yeah. It was just two, two different philosophies. I mean— they didn't complain that I liked the white car and they maybe liked the black car. No, no, I know. They liked but red seats a... and they liked white seats or something. So there's no reason for arguing. I just did a different way of looking at things than they had. Which was fundamentally we what? Fundamentally conservative because I came from a socialistic country. So to me, that was Fiscally kind of like, conservative. Yeah, f- yeah. Well, fiscally conservative, militarily conservative, law enforcement conservative. Socially conservative, no. Well, in some areas, but not in other areas. Yeah. I mean, like, for instance... I always felt kind of like, okay, personally, I'm not for a portion. Yeah. But would I be the one that is saying to people that you cannot have a portion? No, of course not. Yeah. This is that people should choose for themselves what right. they want to do. So I'm. It's not my. I can have my philosophy, but it doesn't mean that I have to force it on someone else. So, so I was always very open-minded about those things, and I think America helped me a lot to be socially more in the center. And more acceptable, you know. The, for instance, I come from a country where I saw the first black person 
when I was 19. Yeah. Think about that. I never grew up with a black person. Yeah. So now I come over here to America, so I had to kind of educate myself about the history about blacks, the yeah. moment, the slavery, and all right. of this kind of stuff, and to fight for equality and being for equality, and then realizing how Austria got into this trouble in the first place with Hitler and the Second World War, how they went after Jews and after anyone that was not like them. And and so then I said to myself, well, that was the wrong direction to go. Like, my father was part of that. And uh, so... I, I What I wanted to do is I wanted to be a different generation and I wanted to be a generation of inclusion and acceptance where everyone kind of like embraces themselves and each other and uh, kind of Democrats and Republicans alike respect everybody but have your own philosophy but still be able to work with the other side. Let me, let me ask you a question because it was sort of like something and, you know, maybe you, you don't answer it, but, you, you know, the way you characterize your childhood – post-war and your father's and the men of your father's generation is that there was a lot of guilt and anger and shame. And But do you think that it was equally divided between people that felt bad for what they were included in and also people who were pissed off they lost the war? Absolutely. There was half of them that didn't believe in Hitler. Yeah. And they were embarrassed. They were ashamed of the whole thing. Yeah. And they were pissed off that this happened in the first place. Right. Then there was the other half that were pissed off that they lost the war. Yeah. And then they were drunk all the time and they were, uh, you know, kind of in pain because they were in the war. And my father, for instance, he had shrapnels moving around in his body. He had back surgery and he had broken back and he had all kinds of, he had malaria. So he wakes up sometimes at night and screaming and all of that. So it was like, and, and the only way they could cope with all of that stuff is by drinking. So sometimes, you know, my dad would come home drunk on Friday night, especially on the end of the week, you know, drunk. And then he would just scream all night long and, uh, you know, smack us around and all that stuff. So, I mean, there was, uh, it was like a terrible effect. So I wanted to kind of like be the next generation and to show to people that within one generation, you can actually go and say, no, never again this we're going to go in a different direction. This generation is going to go in a different direction. We are going to go and be inclusive. And, uh, you know, first of all, I have to say that I grew up with uh, a Jewish mentor. Yeah. So to me, it was... Weider? Uh, no, not Weider. It was a guy by the name of Gerstel. That when I was 15 years old, he uh, was a Catholic and a Jew. Yeah. So he officially was a Catholic just to get along better in oh, Austria, but, but I mean, he was a Jew. Yeah. And so, and he taught us and embraced everything we did and got yeah. us dumbbells and barbells and books to study and always kind of like told us that we have to be as smart as we are strong and, you know, mentally strong. And really? Strong so this guy was a guy who, who pa- he, he said he was Catholic, but wasn't. Well, and he also said he was a, he was a Jew. But was, he was, a, but he was a, so officially he, was hiding. he went, not at hiding, no. Yeah. He just went to the Catholic church and also went to the synagogue. So, I mean, he just did both because he was married to a Catholic woman. So he did kind of both. But it's interesting about the Jews is they put a premium on education. Is that, you know, that was the way they well, got no, this by. Was, this was like fantastic yeah. because you have to understand that I was so in awe of him saying, I want you to run around with a book of Plato. Yeah. And I said, I said why? And he says, because Plato was the one that talked about sound mind, sound body. 
He says, you should study that. Yeah. Why did he say that? What did he mean by that? Yeah. You should be reading about that every day. He says, remember that we Jews have been taken everything in history. Yeah. He says, it was thousands of years ago they took everything from us, hundreds of years ago they took everything, and just recently in the Second World War, they, they again took everything from us. So what did we do to, to, to kind of fight that? We started gaining intelligence. We started educating ourselves. We now stress that to our young uh, kids, to everybody, education, 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 learning, learning, yeah, learning. Yeah. This is why? Because no one can steal your brain. No one can steal your knowledge from you. So make sure to always have knowledge and to stress. And so th that's how I grew up. Yeah. It was with the age of 15, having someone talk to me, sense into me. And in a calm way, someone that I admired someone that I loved because he did got trophies for us for the weightlifting competition. Yeah. He had a son that was studying medicine later on and then became a prominent doctor in Austria. And all so, so he was kind of the first guy that I, I, I kind of knew that was Jewish. Yeah. And uh, so I said to myself, I said, we're all the same. Yeah. So that's the way I looked at it then. So from that point on, and then in bodybuilding, everyone was competing on that same stage blacks and whites and Chinese and Japanese and Indians and this and that. Everyone was treated equally. So I, I learned also inclusion and kind of acceptance and seeing everyone with the same value. Yeah, yeah. So it was wonderful. And Weider, Joe Weider was, of course, also a Jew that yeah. actually brought me to America. And Ben Weider, his brother, they were, they were very open about this. When the AAU in the old days in America were prejudiced like hell. And they did not let any AAU member win the Mr. America competition. A what's black it, what's person. It? Yeah. Black person. Yeah. So only whites won. Yeah. And so guys like uh, Sergio Liver, that was much better than the white guy was. And, uh, uh, you know, Harold Poole, who got beaten by Vern Weaver in 1963. They, because he was black. So they then came to the IFBB, which was Weeders organization. Yeah. And the Weeders treated everyone with respect and equally. And that's the federation that I joined then. So when you get going in politics, you know, because I was, I was watching some stuff and I know what your concerns are now, you know, and, I, and, and you're still a, a, a civil servant and a public advocate for what you believe in. Uh, but, you know, the alignment, because you Climate change is a big concern for you. Mm -hmm. and well, it, pollution. Right. More so. Because climate change is, a, is, is kind of like, um, it's, a, it's the result of a pollution. Right. And so but, if we wipe out pollution, we can wipe out all of those other problems. Well, I mean, but what I'm trying to figure out is that, like, given your, your position as, as governor and as a political thinker, you, you aligned yourself pretty early on with Milton Friedman and the, another Jew. And the idea of free market and then the, the free market system, which is still operative, became sort of untethered and regulations broke down. And there's really no way to separate, you know, the free market from pollution on some level. Have you shifted your ideas around policy in terms of that? Well, I can tell you right now that there is a lot of money that can be made in the green energy sector. And we in California have shown that. Yeah. I mean, when they say we can't get off oil because this would be terrible for in our, our economy, 
It's the biggest bullshit I've ever heard. Because in California, we have started to get off oil and we started building solar. Yeah. And we started building the hydrogen highway. We started building battery plants and also Tesla. Yeah. Remember that Tesla started, they had the first factory up here in, in the Bay Area. And uh, in the Bay Area, we, when I was governor, we got them to plant. And now Tesla is the number one and the richest auto company in the world. They are, they, their value is over $300 billion, which is all of the car manufacturers together yeah. don't have that value. Yeah. That's how rich they are. That's how much money they have. And that's how valuable they are. And they've been building cars for a little bit over 20 years. So this just shows to you green. Yeah. They're building green cars, only electric so cars. You, you still so it's huge. It's a huge explosion economically to have Tesla. And it is like building our solar plants. And then people have literally left the oil fields in Bakersfield and gone to go and start building solar pa panels and stuff like that. We have, I started as the governor, the million solar roof initiative. Uh, this is a program where we have a still, uh, where we built a million solar roofs. And just a few years ago, we built the million, million solar solar roof. Yeah. So imagine that, how yeah. much energy that creates. So I think the action is between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats love renewable energy. And don't ask me why this is a Democratic and Republican issue, because that's really stupid. Right? Well, it's because, because corporate lobbyists. No, no, there's nothing to do with it because you can corporate, you can have corporations that build solar panels too. It is nothing to do with it. It is just ideologically, somehow they feel that there is no climate change and there is really no threat to the climate and to the temperatures and all this stuff that conservatives feel. And I don't know why. Okay, so I cannot tell you what's inside the brain. But I mean, the bottom line is, it is what it is. Remember, that's what Robert De Niro always said in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is, yeah. which is true. So therefore, I say, okay, you Democrats love renewable energy. I fall on both sides. I'm falling to the liberal side and the conservative side when it comes to that. I said, you love the, the, the renewable energy. So we have 20% of renewable energy yeah. in America. Let's up that renewable energy to 40% which means we add 100% more renewable energy, right? From 20 to 40%. Yeah. In nuclear power, we have 20% of, uh, we create 20% of, of clean energy yeah. through nuclear power. Let's up that from 20% to 40%, just like with renewable. Yeah. And now we have an increase of 100% of nuclear power. Now we have altogether 80% of clean air in America. The Republicans like the, the nuclear power idea. The Democrats like the renewable. That's where the deal is. And I guarantee you down the line, that's where the deal will you, be. You think we'll make it in time? Uh, it, it definitely will be on time. Absolutely. Okay. We're not running out of time, okay? I mean, let me tell you something. Yeah. They, they, the environmentalists always talk about that we're running out of time and all this stuff. If we will be running out of time, they wouldn't go and slow down windmill building and solar plant building uh, with with permitting processes, and it takes you four years to get the permits and all this stuff. It's a bunch of nonsense. If there's really an emergency, 
Let's go and cut all this permitting process. I think there's an and emergency. Let's go and let's start building all this oh, stuff. Oh, so you're saying it's a permitting issue? It's a, it's, a, it's a permitting issue, but it, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot scream on one side. Yeah. It's an emergency, and then another side hoarding up those kind of projects. We know, for instance, that the more freeways that we build. And the more lanes we build, yeah. the less there's traffic jams. But that didn't. What do you guess is the biggest? Well, we did work out when For a I was while. governor. When I was governor, we built uh, eleven billion dollars worth of infrastructure. It still takes me an hour to get to Santa Monica. Yeah, but it's better <laughs> because government is always thirty years behind. So we should be having those freeways that we have now. But the we si- should have had them thirty years ago. Now we should have three times as much. So the point I'm making yes. is. The liberals have to understand, and the environmentalists have to understand, that in order to cut down on pollution, we have to cut down on traffic jams. Because the traffic jams, the more you go slow with the cars like that, and you stop and you go and you stop and you go, that's what creates pollution. So you're saying bureaucracy. So a metaphor. we have to go and get rid of the traffic jams by building more freeways and more lanes. And the only way we can do that is to get to cut through the permitting process, to be faster with it, so that we can look at this. Our high-speed rail, since the 80s, we've been talking about high-speed rail in California, and it's still not done. But whose fault is that? This is because of the, the way the laws work and the way the, 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 the restrictions to the permitting process and all this. What do you think why we have homeless do you think the homeless was created by the homeless? There were people that just walked out of the home and said, I want to be homeless? No, it was created by government. Like Ronald Reagan always said, government is the biggest problem and the biggest obstacle, which is true. Who created the homeless issue? It was the people for not giving you permits to build more apartment buildings. So they held back the apartment that, but buildings. I don't know if that's true no, because the, it has to do with jobs. It has to do with no, no, class. No, no, no. It has to do with, no. you know, opportunity. Yeah, but what do you think the opportunities come? If you go and you build all of a sudden a million more homes or a million more condominiums, a million more But you also have to give them a, a, a safety net for a living. To, to survive. I mean, you can't just give people the a house. The first thing you need to have is a home for these people. The people cannot afford a home anymore. When you have a limited amount of homes, that means the value of homes goes up because it's a limited amount. Right now in Santa Monica, a studio costs $3,000. A one-bedroom costs $4,000. A two-bedroom costs $5,000. Who can afford that? But, but there's also the but the, the same thing you're talking about, permits. The lack of regulation it also led to the housing bubble, right? But that's they, what I'm saying. It's regulations and permits. But you need regulation. You, you need it, but not to go to the extent where you hoard up. There was a, a belief in the 80s, I remember that very well, by not building who mean that people will not move to California. We don't want an explosion in California, so let's not build. Let's not create the infrastructure for future generations yeah. where we have 40, 50 million people. They came anyway. The 40 million people are here. When I came to this country, there was 18 million people. Now there are 40 million. They came anyway, even though they had restrictions, even though they had the permitting done, they were tough on permitting, the regulations and all that stuff. They should have just opened it up to the free market. The more the people want to have apartments, the more you build apartments. Then it would have kept the value but the, but down the free market, and it would have been affordable. Right. Now, the poor guy that is making $1,500 a month, how can he afford a $2,000 apartment? But, but, he cannot afford but it. But the free market doesn't stop untethered greed. There is, free market's always going to be exploited, so you can't always trust the private sector to you, solve you, the problems. No, no, no. You can go and 
work on that, but not on stopping to build. They have stopped to build. So now we are short of a million apartments. If we would have a million apartments more, the prices would come down and all the homeless would have. But are there a million jobs? A, would have millions of jobs. Uh-huh. To, to build those, those buildings? Are you kidding me? Look, the city knows they made a mistake. The environmentalists know they made a mistake. And now they have to just correct it. The question is, can the same mind, remember what Einstein said, the same mind that created the problem cannot solve it? So that is the question. Can the same mind in Los Angeles or in Sacramento or in any of those big cities that created the problem, can they also solve it? But there's it? also you know, the drugs, mental illness, bad health care. You, you can throw all of this into the, the, into the bag in order to devalue the mistakes that were made in the 80s and 90s about not building enough buildings. The fact still is L.A. has done a horrible job in planning, in planning on transportation, in planning on building tunnels and bridges, in planning on housing and all of this stuff. And remember, no one held anyone back to create more uh, local clinics where people can go that are addicted, that can go and get help and all this medical help and all that stuff. So it's all available. It, this is what it's all about is when you run a city, you have to know all of those kind of things. And you cannot look at it in a political way, in a democratic way, or in a Republican way, Democrats and Republicans have to work together to solve those problems. How close were you to being the presidential nominee? Well, I could not even run for but, president. But there was an actual movement to yeah, yeah, change the I mean, Constitution. It, 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 it takes two-thirds of the states and two-thirds of the votes in Congress to go and change the Constitution. Yeah. So it, it, that's not the priority right now. What is the priority? Was it a so disappointment have, to you? No, I mean it's like everything that I was able to do in America was because of America. I mean, think about the career I've had. Think about the life I've had. I mean, no one in the world has this kind of life. No one. Yeah. That I can guarantee you. And it was all possible because of America because of the generosity in America, because of its political system, its democracy, and because it's the greatest country in the world, I mean, the most opportunities. So I saw that firsthand. And so I'm not going to complain about the only job that I can't do, which is to be president. Oh, poor Arnold cannot run for president of the United States. We feel so sorry for you, Arnold. No, no, it's not going to happen. Okay, so I... See, I'm always there to be supportive to a Democratic administration or a Republican administration. makes no difference. I want to help to make America stay number one. It seems like you're genuinely afraid of the possibility of fascism here. I am. After the statement you made after January 6th. everything that I can to support democracy and to make sure that we are going in the right direction. Because of what you know personally. It's just democracy is very vulnerable, not only in America, but they are worldwide. I mean, you see what's happening. I know, yeah. How these right-wing guys get elected and then all of a sudden take certain rights away. And even in Israel, they have yeah. this situation now. And so that is uh, is alarming. And I think that we should be aware of it and we should talk about it all the time. And I think that it's not going to happen in America. I don't think it's—I think that we are going to protect our democracy 
and I have great hopes for America because it's still the number one country in the world. Of course. And and what have you learned from, you know, your personal humiliation in terms of how that's affected the way you think about, you know, life and, and your your sensitivity to other people, you know, having to accept your mistakes publicly and Oh, you know, I don't think that has any effect on that. Uh, no, 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 because look, I am the first one, I think from the time I was a kid, I knew that I do great things and I also screw up. Yeah. And I think that as I grew up, that happened. And then as I got older, that happened. And uh, <laughs> and then at one point, it really happened to really an extent where it cost me my marriage. Yeah. And um, so I don't think that that changed me as a person other than it, uh, you know, you can't take the toothpaste and put it back in a tube. Yeah. You know, so that doesn't work. So you have to then deal with that. And I think to me, the most important thing was that uh, to recognize that it was only my fault. Yeah. That there was no fight. Yeah. In the family. Yeah. My wife was just a, a victim of it and the innocent bystander, and that I had to then work with her very closely to raise our kids. Yeah. So it has no effect on our kids. So that was the thing. But the way I look at the world, uh, because I was always a very generous person, I was always a very giving person, I was always a person that felt that there has to be a great combination of you know, taking care of yourself and building your own career and in order at the same time, you know, worrying about your neighborhood and your state, your city, your country and give something back to that also. And so that was always kind of my take and my philosophy. Uh, How are you getting along with everybody? Great. Everything's good? I have a great relationship with my ex-wife. I have a great relationship with my kids. I, uh, grandkids now? I have a fantastic relationship with the grandkids that yeah. come over to the house uh, regularly. How are, they, how are the horses and, and the donkey? The horses and the donkeys and the pig, Schnelli, <laughs> and the dogs, uh, Schnitzel and Dutchie and Noodle. Uh, all of them are just uh, doing fine. Are you and, still a vegan? And, uh, I never was a vegan. Oh. I was, uh, you, you're right, I was part vegan. Uh-huh. I always said that I've That's not reduced. Vegan. No, no. But <laughs> yeah. what, it, what it means is yeah. that I reduced. My meat intake by seventy percent, oh, yeah. approximately. Well, Meaning that I have maybe uh, once a week a steak or a schnitzel, a Wiener schnitzel, yeah. or something like that. But it's throughout the week I eat mostly vegetables. It was, that was because of what cholesterol? It's, or it's both. Inflammation? I think that Jim Cameron, yeah, you know the director, sure. who uh, is a good friend of mine. So he uh, and I talked about it, and he just felt very strongly that. It has two great advantages when you eat less meat. Environmental. In his case, no meat. Yeah. But in my case, less meat. It is has number one that the, the effect that it is healthier for your body. Yeah. For your heart and yeah. everything. Less inflammation in the body. You don't have to do the stupid, uh, you know, plunge pools and yeah. cold pools. You do that. Stuff. I don't because I just eat less meat. Yeah. There's animal products and stuff <laughs> yeah. like that, so I do it more permanent. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, also environmentally, because 38 percent, 28 percent of the pollution comes from raising livestock from cow farts. So you, well, also <laughs> cow farts, but I mean, but Water. raising yeah. stock, livestock, yeah. and so we could do better than that by eating less meat. So that's the idea. My my girlfriend had an interesting question, and I just wanted to ask: Was there a time when you were learning English, 
where, you know, people who were in the room with you were speaking candidly, thinking you didn't understand, but you did understand? Well, yes, I think that uh, I have to say that the Americans are kind of like very odd about all this stuff. Yeah. Because uh, they are very accommodating. Yeah. In uh, understanding when you're a foreigner. Yeah. And they would then spell it out for you and they right. would explain it to you. Yeah, yeah. And this is what it means and all that kind of stuff. And But at the other hand, when I wanted to get into movies, they made very clear to me, Americans don't like to hear foreign accents as a leading man. Yeah. He says, people have had terrible time and almost it was impossible for anyone yeah. to become a leading man with an accent. Uh-huh. And so then it's not going to happen to you. You're not going to be successful with that. And so um, they felt very strongly that people felt that people wanted to hear people talk like John Wayne or like Clint Eastwood or Charles Bronson or like yeah, Alan yeah. Brando right. or whatever, but not, you know, like yeah. uh, Klaus Maria Brandau or something like that. But you, you know, made the, your own version of it. Yeah, they, so the it was, guy, the, the Mexican guy next door just did your lines yeah. when I introduced you. <laughs> but it is, it's exactly what I talk about in the book again yeah. is sell, sell, sell. So I believed that if I want to be successful in America, yeah, not just in bodybuilding, but in general, people have to go and become familiar with my accent. Yeah. And so I started doing in the 70s hundreds of TV interviews and hundreds of radio interviews so that everyone in America hears my accent. And then eventually it became so accepted that we even had a Hans and Franz I know, yeah, on yeah. Saturday Night Live yeah. come along and they were my cousins all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah, here we are to look for Uncle Arnold. Yeah, yeah, and while we are looking for Uncle Arnold, we are here to pump you up. Yeah. You know, and the, your little girly man with your flapper lunch around the waist. Look at you. I'm going to pick you up and throw you through the air so you land in your own baby poop. <laughs> you know, so this was kind of the dialogue. And uh, it was hilarious. And I said to myself, that's when you have arrived. Yeah. <laughs> when people now on Saturday Night Live, yeah. the biggest comedy show in the world has now two characters that are imitating my accent yeah. and exaggerating. Yeah. So I started exaggerating their exaggerations. Yeah. It was like really funny. That's then they had me on the show. Yeah. And Danny DeVito and I was on the show and I we did, did the show to promote twins, I remember, and all yeah. this stuff. And we became all very good friends. And we almost did a, a movie about Hans and Franz uh, actually Franz, yeah. finding Finding, Finding uh, your yeah, Uncle Arnold, exactly. Yeah, so. so now, yeah. like to to wrap it up, you feel you know, you, you, your voice in in the public conversation is important to you, and 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 what do you feel your responsibility is that you know, outside of the the book, which is you know fundamentally a self help book, but what do you feel your civic responsibility is right now? I continue doing everything that I did as governor. I continue fighting for a clean environment. I continue fighting for great education for everybody, for after-school programs, for healthcare for everybody, a home for everybody. I mean, all of those issues I fight through the Schwarzenegger Institute at USC, and we have the environmental conference in Vienna every year where we bring political parties from all different sectors together from the, the, the Green Party, the 
the, the conservative party, the socialist party, and everyone to be bring together to show to the people that it doesn't have to be a political issue and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I, I just feel privileged that I'm able to continue on doing my work in public policy and then giving something back to the community. But at the same time, I recognize the fact that more and more people look at me as a motivator to do motivational speeches yeah. and talks and to write motivational articles. And that's why we have the newsletter to be a motivational force on the internet uh, when everything is negative, to have something positive out there. And uh, that's why I also wrote this book because uh, everyone felt like, hey, why just talk about it? Let's go and put those points and those tools that you always talk about. Let's put them together into one book and then do a book, a motivational book, where you tell people, here are the tools that I used and that I discovered in my life that made me successful. Okay. Well, it was an honor talking to you. Well, thank you. It was fun to talk to you. Okay, buddy. You're fun guy to hang out with. Good. Thank you. Yeah. And my, my tries look all right, right? Your triceps, your brachialis, intercostals, rear delta, everything is pumping up. I'll, I'll put my shirt back on. Okay. I think that went all right. Uh, and uh, I got a kick out of him. It was, it was you know, there. I've met many people. Uh, and talk to many people here uh, who are unlike anybody else. And it's always kind of amazing. Uh, the book, Be Useful, Seven Tools for Life, is available now. Please hang out for a minute, will you? Hey, folks, this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here, and when they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Okay, so to hear what I was thinking right after Arnold left the garage, you can get my debrief with Brendan as part of this week's Full Marin bonus episode. It's beyond that he was he's a governor or a movie star. He's just fucking Arnold. Well, yeah, you could see it from the dudes who were working next door. Is that they had right. they had no context other than, you know, that guy is in the movies that yeah. we liked. You know, he is that guy. And, you right. know, I've never experienced that with anyone else other than Danny Trejo, specifically in, in a Mexican neighborhood. But but there is an elevation to what they, rep, you know, to the feeling of uh, of excitement because of what he represents. Y you know, yeah. like when I was doing uh, Marin that day with Trejo and we were in Highland Park, I mean, you know, people were coming out in windows. They were yeah. machete! machete. <laughs> <laughs> And it was sort of the same thing. Like these guys next door could not fucking believe it. I could see 
because like yeah. you really got to strain to look through the lattice. And when he stuck yeah. his head out, the guy, the guy's eyes just like bugged out of his head. You're like, oh my, like he couldn't believe it. He couldn't even process it. And all this guy's got to fucking do is say, I'm back. Yeah. And, it, and yeah. the people lose their minds. It's yeah. amazing. Oh, they love it. But, you know, I do yeah. too, because anytime he was doing that thing that, that he yeah. turns on, it's like waiting for Will Ferrell to do something funny. As soon as exactly. Arnold does any of those lines or, or, or tries to be funny in any way, it's so specifically his it's, yes. it, it, was, it just killed me. To get all the weekly bonus episodes and all WTF episodes ad-free, sign up by clicking the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF+. Next week, Judas Priest frontman Rob Halford is on Monday and then a doubleheader with Doug Stanhope and Louis Katz on Thursday. Now I, I will try to play some guitar. and the Fonda.